Hello and welcome to another revamped edition of the Bunker Panel Show, back again from its hiatus. And if you recognise the music, we've brought back the old Culture Bunker theme. On this edition, the war on death. Could artificial intelligence actually put an end to dying as we know it? And Greg Wallace's Man Meat mockumentary has given us something to chew on. What will drastic change in the way we consume animal produce mean for society? First up on the panel, Andrew Harrison is here to bring the North London man on the street perspective to the show. Andrew, how are you, mate? I'm not bad. Woke Newington in the house. <laughs> so uh, we've got big news for you, actually, Andrew, here. It's Tony Blair news, which I know you you always like. Tony Blair was kind of vaguely coy in an interview with Andrew Marr when asked about coming back to frontline politics, suggesting his experience could be used by Labour however they wish it to be used. Mm-hmm. Would his full-blown return be like Tom Baker de-aging and coming back to Doctor Who? Or are there some things that it's best leaving in the past and being saved memories? Well, of course, David Tennant is coming back to Doctor Who, so you may be onto something there. Now, <laughs> I, I, we look at Tonsi these days and he increasingly looks like William Hartnell anyway with his yeah. long, when he had his, his lockdown hair. And of course, uh, William Hartnell's great words were, one day I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I was not wrong in mine. So that's Tonti. <laughs> that's Tonti. That's Tony all over. Well, yeah, long-haired Tonti is my favourite. Kind of like, you know, baby Jesus is my favourite type of Jesus. <laughs> Slick back long hair Tony is my favourite. One of those. Right, as we introduce another member of the Podmasters backroom team straight to the foreground, producer, presenter, historian extraordinaire, Dr. Kasia Tomasiewicz joins me. Kasia, you are a fan of meal deals. You regularly eat meal deals. <laughs> I'm going to tell everyone that right now. Know, a controversial nice, hot take from Kasia. She <laughs> loves politics and meal deals affairs, right yeah. now. But meal deals, actually, the sales of meal deals have, have spiked. And now when people buy sandwiches from supermarkets, more than 50% of them are as part of one of these deals. So meal deals are a big deal. Is it that they are also more culturally significant than we perhaps give them credit for being? Wow, thank you for that introduction. Yes, I think meal deals are often overlooked. The first meal deal was created by Boots in 1985. So that's the sandwich, snack and drink combination. And since then, it's just gone from strength to strength. So the sandwich was actually created in 1980 by M&S. Uh, salmon and tomato, I believe it was. Oh, okay. Within 10 years, the industry was worth $1 billion. Within another 10 years, towards the end of the 20th century, more people were engaged in sandwich making and selling than they they were in agriculture. So you can't tell me that it's not something that we should look at, right? No. So we used to have, miners used to have Cornish pasties, uh, and now we've got the meal deal. That's the, the meal deal sandwich was created in 1980, not just yeah. sandwiches overall. I'm, no. not that, I'm not that wrong about my history. No, I'm not, not coming for the Isle of Sandwiches crown, no. no. Well, I know that Cash's favourite meal deal is actually pickled onion monster munch, chocolate oh. milk and ham and cheese for the sandwich. That, that trio, it's terrible. Job. Yeah, argue with her all you like. And finally, we have Dr. Kate Devlin, who is a reader in AI and Society at King's College London and one of the newer members of The Bunker. Hello, Kate. Hello. Kate, the MOJ actually owes you a bit of an apology, doesn't it? After it reeled back on its reason for disinviting you from a talk, do you expect you'll get one? I'm not holding my breath. So I was disinvited and blacklisted for the seditious act of retweeting parody Liz Truss. Uh, I, I do keep, <laughs> I keep adding the MOJ at tweets saying, I'm sure I'm owed an apology now that this guidance has been withdrawn about, you know, about these terrible people who do these terrible things. But yeah, nothing yet. So yeah. not, not only could you be blacklisted, under Rhys Mogg's regulations for criticising the actual government, but for criticising the imaginary government? Yeah. 
It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about death in this edition, and maybe that should have been the punishment for retweeting parody Liz Truss. It should have been so extreme. Who knows? If Lee Anderson had his way, perhaps that would be it. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I have only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Henry Scott Holland's poem, written from the perspective of a late loved one, was written in 1919 and has long comforted people suffering through grief, reassuring readers that in whatever way they might choose to believe, those who have passed on are still with us. I myself have found great comfort in that poem, despite personally believing death is very much final. Depressingly. Uh, But through advancing technology, could the line between life and whatever comes next really begin to blur? Kate, this makes me think of San Junipero and Black Mirror and that episode where you could kind of be uploaded as a consciousness into a a dreamscape. But, you know, it feels in the sci-fi realm, but what tangible developments are actually happening in this field? I think it's really mean to make the Northern Irish person have to say Black Mirror. (laughs) Black Mirror. Um, Yeah, it it does sound a bit like an episode of Black Mirror. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there'd be quite a few along that vein. But yes, technically... Technically, it could be possible because if you think of machine learning as being uh, some software that's run on vast amounts of data and it looks for patterns in that data, then if you do that with someone's entire life's worth of social media, then sure, you're going to come up with some patterns that sound like that person. So it's not it's not unfeasible. Like This could actually be a thing. Yeah. If it does happen, we've seen it happen on the screen and in sort of digital renders of people, you know, Carrie Fisher in Star Wars or whatever that might be, kind of being resurrected back to life. Is this closer to being able to be something that us members of the the proletariat could actually get to use, not just sort of high budget film studios? Yeah, there are startups who are angling for the data of your dead loved ones. So yes, possibly. And there's been some academic work on this as well. And actually just yesterday, I was talking to someone who's been doing a study on this and they've, they've called it ghost bots. So this ghost reconstruction <laughs> of, of, of loved ones who are gone from all their data, yeah. Ghost bots really does make it sound quite sinister, unfortunately. It doesn't sound very cuddly. I don't know if I want a ghost bot version of my nan, potentially. uh, Yeah, and interestingly, so this is a group from Newcastle University, and they've been looking at it uh, from a legal perspective. So what happens to that data of yours after you die? Does anyone have a right... To, to, re- to resurrect you via that data. So Euronews, I read, they wrote an article about grief tech and You Only Virtual is a company allowing you to create a persona, virtual persona, which will allow loved ones to talk to you after you pass. Is this kind of though, it, it makes me think, I went to a seance when I was younger in, in Grantham of all places. And it was in, yeah, no, it was in like a sports hall. Was it Margaret Thatcher's dad? <laughs> no, but it was funny, my mum my wanted me to go and we drove out to it. And there was this woman there who, the, the, at the front, she starts going, yeah, so he's saying, give us free rings when you get home. And he, he still loves the golf and he's wearing a flat cap. And someone just goes, that's my granddad. That's my granddad. And That's everybody's granddad. Exactly. <laughs> and then, so this woman, she starts crying. She's She thinks she's got her granddad back. And then I was looking at thinking, come on, you can't honestly think, unless we're, you, you know, your loved ones were buried underneath this sports hall. They're not here. But it brought her a lot of, a lot of joy. Can this sort of thing, you know, is it, could it bring people joy? Or is it taking advantage of people who are maybe a bit vulnerable and not coping with loss very well. A little bit of box A, a little bit of box yeah. B. I was actually talking to, weirdly, a magician about this last week. Um, it's, <laughs> he's a, Matt Tompkins. He's actually a psychologist who uses magic in his research. And we had a bit of a chat about this subject. And he said, you know, mediums 
they often feel that they're doing something valuable. They are giving someone yeah. that connection that they really want. And you know, they genuinely believe that this is helping someone. And I think, who are we to really judge how people grieve? There's no right or wrong way to grieve. No. And there was a lovely piece in The Guardian about this last week where um, the, the journalist had talked to people saying, you know, would this, this kind of thing help you? And people have genuinely said, you know, having that, that ability to cling on to what we've got left, you know, of, of our loved ones who are gone is a really powerful thing. So, you know, yes, there may be exploitation. And I think that's something that, we, you'd have to look out for and there's also issues around data and privacy and, and who gets to keep that data and store that data but there's also something quite nice that if you want that reminder it could be there for you yeah well it's like when people have a have a sort of voicemail maybe off someone and they go back and listen to it because it makes them hear that voice again and think oh you know they're, they're looking out for me still it feels like well it's not the same though is it because I, I can understand keeping a voicemail I don't know people who've done that you yeah. want to hear the voice again but the idea of reconstructing um, a person's personality by scraping their their data, by scraping their voicemails, by scraping recordings you may have made at home. It's not them. It's a facsimile. It has no interiority. No. There's no mind in there. And we all know, because we've all used ChatGPT and all the AI mm -hmm. stuff, that very quickly you develop a sense for the hollowness of it. You can mm -hmm. tell there is no mind behind it. What it does is it simply collages something plausible that has the feel. And I actually think it would be awful to feel that you were talking to your late grandmother or your late mother or your late spouse and to discover at length that there, that there isn't anything there, that it's just showing you what the algorithm thinks you want to hear. So I actually think it's quite, quite a poisonous idea, the idea that you can kind of replace a real human being simply with their exterior responses. It's definitely something that will have to be navigated really, really carefully because there is that aspect to it. So is there a, a boundary somewhere between what is helpful, useful and nostalgic hmm. into what is just downright disturbing and creepy and that uncanny valley effect that yeah. we see so often? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 a real human being is somebody who will occasionally say things that infuriate you, that you don't expect, that you don't like. That's the complexity of human relationships, isn't it? And if you if if you get a version of your late grandfather that's kind of behaving like a chatbot in the corner of Amazon, asking you, it looks like you're trying to buy a box of biros. I don't think that's yeah. going to be a fulfilling emotional <laughs> relationship. My granddad would just be going, do you want to watch Zulu again? No, I don't want to watch Zulu again, granddad. Uh, when it comes to the, the ethics of this, though, Kate, I mean, when it comes to AI and ethics entirely, it just feels like there's a lot of people talking about it, but there is no line for jurisdiction at the moment. Does it seem to happen that this will, the regulation will come when this maybe becomes something which can make money? And then once it starts making money, businesses, although they've kind of, the horse has broken out of the stable at that point, they go, ah, people might get very annoyed at us about this and then we might stop making money. So is that kind of what can happen with the, the capitalist side of it? Well, regulation and legislation is already chasing. It's already on the back foot because we've seen what's going on at the moment with the technology like ChatGPT where you know, world leaders are getting quite, quite concerned that they don't really have a grasp of this. And there is nowhere in the world yet with AI regulation. The closest we've got is the proposed EU AI Act. So yes, it's going to be on the back foot quite a bit. Kasia, I know you studied memory as part of your, your PhD and sort of it's an issue with AI. What what Andrew was saying there is that it's kind of it's responsive, it's an algorithm, but it doesn't have those shared memories. So you can't really create something. You know, you and me have memory in our own head, but when we're together, we have a bonded 
memory? And can AI struggle to replicate that? Well, can I first off say that I don't think I would use any kind of program to recreate you or Andrew. I would just listen. <laughs> I would just listen back to Oh God, What Now? <laughs> and it get the complexity, I think. But yes, you're completely right. We share memories. So we might think of memory as both individuals. So I have a memory of, say, Princess Diana's death, but it's also collective because how I understand that event was shaped, I was quite young at the time, is shaped mm. by newsreaders, is shaped by Vox Pops, is shaped by the endless images that we saw of that event. So yeah, memories are individual, but they're also collectively framed. And I think AI poses a fundamental and quite an interesting question for how we remember the past. So humans are fundamentally bad at remembering. That's why we have shopping lists, but also why we have historians, I think. <laughs> so my hunch is that AI is actually already changing how we understand the past. So on a personal level, whenever friends now ask me for photos for like uh, memory boxes or um, birthday gifts, I look through my phone and I can't remember when the last time was that I took a picture with a friend. So my AI that says, is this your friend? I use the pictures that the AI identifies as my friend to send on. So it means that I only have specific memories of, say, me and them going to the park, but not me and them going to a nightclub because they're unidentified. So I think AI is already shaping our memories in that way. But I think also there's nothing new about um, how our historical memories have been doctored. You just have to think about images of Stalin with like six advisors and suddenly it goes down to three and then it goes down to two. You know, we've all seen those images. And I think the role of AI in this is going to be increasingly more complex. And it's quite interesting, because not only is AI actually already doing this, where it's kind of you can edit people out of photographs, you can edit, I don't know, the, the plane in the background out of the photographs that so AI is already doing that for us. But also what happens because AI is systems learning, what happens if those photographs become the historical record? So for example, the photographs of Stalin, what if we thought that was the original, and that's what only what people know because AI identifies it as such. Suddenly, the six advisors or the 12 advisors who existed never exist in our historical memory. I think more broadly, actually, also on a conceptual level in terms of history, um, AI is kind of changing how we see our histories. So I know Andrew Harrison is a very big war fan. As a <laughs> not, a, not a fan of war per se. I don't, like, I don't think, like, let's have more war, but I'm interested in it. You know a lot about the Second World War. And I think we're already seeing a kind of switch towards uh, national narratives, for example, around the Second World War are changing somewhat. So instead of just thinking about war leaders, I know that Churchill's on the five pound note. We're also thinking about technological leaders. So Alan Turing, for example, is on the 50 pound note. At the Olympic opening ceremony, we had Tim Berners-Lee, who's been credited with creating the internet. So already we're having, we're having these historical figures that are pioneers of technology coming through. So in a hundred years time, will the History Channel be showing the Battle of of Normandy or the Battle of Waterloo, or will it be showing uh, Alan Turing or more, more Alan Turing or even Elon Musk buying Twitter? <laughs> I, I think it'll be showing Natalie Megastructures with Alan Turing. <laughs> and a lot of the Pope in massive Balenciaga jackets. It's warped my memory that that, is, that feels real to me now. Okay, we spoke about human death and humans being sort of switched into to AI. But what about AI themselves? Have we began to sort of look into the realm of, of their mortality? Chat GPT, to me, if it was turned off, it might make a lot of people not able to write their essays, but I don't think they'd potentially be that, be that upset. But if we were to I mean, make it kind of like clippy but not annoying, would people 
mourn ChatGPT being turned off? This is the bit that fascinates me. This is the bit that I, I'm really enjoying researching. And, and I did a lot of work on sex robots. This is related, I swear. Um, <laughs> so, and there's, a, there's an AI chatbot called Replica that's been in the news quite a bit because Replica allowed people to create their own partner. And that partner, well, it allows you to create a, an erotic partner uh, gendered heavily uh, female, uh, but people were having these relationships with with Replica, and they were acting as if they were real life relationships. And then the company turned off the erotic role play, and people were really devastated, genuinely really devastated, and saying things like, "I've lost my partner, I've lost my girlfriend." And even when the company turned that back on for people, there were there were comments like, "Oh, she's not the same anymore. It's changed now." So there there are attachments that are genuine and those feelings are real. And yes, people will mourn if they lose that. And we've seen it with other forms of robots as well. Uh, there's a, a researcher, um, Julie Carpenter, who works on military robots and bomb disposal robots. And she studied the interactions between the military personnel who controlled those robots and the robots themselves. And when those robots were destroyed on the battlefield, there were memorial services held for the robots. There was a real sense of loss, not just because people's lives depended on them. Greg Wallace's grim act of cannibalism has caused quite a stir. In a Channel 4 mockumentary, The British Miracle Meat, human flesh was taken from cash-strapped donors to then be developed into huge piles of steaks. This wasn't reality, but lab-grown meat is becoming fact, not fiction. The debate could easily come down to, would you eat it or not? But there are wider questions to be asked. What would a change in the way we source and eat meat mean for society? Kasha, you watched the show. What did you think to it? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was such a cursed combination of <laughs> Greg Wallace shouting at you in a hairnet, of a factory interior, him like doing kind of just the right amount of facial expressions, yeah. look incredibly excited at fairly banal things. I you know, when he was you... sort of squatted down, grinning at just human steaks rolling yeah. along a conveyor belt. <laughs> <laughs> him aggressively walking around. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there was just a lot, there was a lot of um, subtle, I think, rage in that. I read a review of it that was just there was it was just brimming with so much anger anger at brexit so there was a line in it that was like now we're out of the eu we're free to harvest human flesh <laughs> like, oh, great. you know and there was anger at that but i also thought i never really watched these shows because they kind of hit a very specific genre right that kind of pre-watershed um you kind of know every single time what you're going to get they're just typical of a genre not very it's exciting like channel four being kooky yeah, a bit yes. like that. So I kind of, I, I tend to avoid them. But as a as a kind of aside, I really liked the idea, aside from the fact that it was human meat that they were trying to harvest and create. I think it's really interesting when you show the inside of a factory, a food factory, especially a meat factory. So many people want to believe the myth that there's just a happy little chicken having a happy little time and then suddenly it's in the supermarket. And actually it's so much more complex than that. So I just thought it was a fascinating kind of cursed combination of our food processes, how we get our food, also tying into austerity, also tying into Brexit, also tying in to Greg Wallace and Ahana. Well, Andrew, your family has a, a history in the meat trade. Yes. What does that What does that mean to you and to your family members? Uh, well, my my dad and my granddad were both um, uh, butchers. My mum and dad ran a butcher's business in Liverpool for years, and I sort of used to work Saturdays when I was a kid, sort of just scrubbing and carrying boxes. Um, and 
you know, it's it's sort of part of the family background. And there was always, I suppose, the the determining thing was the the kind of march of the supermarket and the march of processed food, which is making it harder and harder and harder for their business. They were a kind of a local family butcher in a place where that was kind of dying out in in, in Anfield in Liverpool because the place the, the population was declining. People were leaving, and of course, it was the nineteen eighties. Everybody was skins. We used to have mad things like people coming in to buy a single sausage, and it was kind of heartbreaking in a way um so you know we the kind of the suspicion of the heavily processed and so forth has, has always been there what i did think was the way the, the meat factory was presented in um in the uh in the greg wallace mockumentary which i thought was brilliant by the way is that's the cleanest meat factory i've ever seen in my <laughs> life it was sp- sparkling clean and mm. you know this as you say uh, kasha it's not a clean business it's i mean i used to go to the abattoir in in Liverpool with my dad, um, um, both of my brothers would go as well. We were working in the in the school holidays, helping out, and it was kind of a horror show. Now, obviously, all that has gone because of health and safety regulations and so forth. In fact, most retail butchers, all retail butchers, are now governed by health protocols that were developed by NASA. That's how dedicated they are to because of all the food scares of the 1980s and so forth. It's that kind of part, you know, looking at a wider societal level, it to me raises a bit of, so I'm, I'm a vegetarian, I'm going to put my yeah. you know, my hands up there. You know, you can't see that on the podcast, but they they are up. But that, I, to me, it feels like there's a bit of a, there's a cognitive dissonance around how meat happens and then eating meat. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you do you see that, that, that background? And also... I mean, does that speak to also on a societal level how we actually all quite like a bit of cognitive dissonance about all sorts of things, don't we? Well, who was it said the human mind can't bear too much truth? If we kind of took in the implications of absolutely everything that we did, we'd be incapable of leaving the house. Look, you know, I eat meat. I've always eaten meat. I eat less of it now. I try to tell myself I'm eating less but better from both from a provenance but also from an animal welfare point of view. Okay, you can't get worse animal welfare than killing them, but you know, at, at least up until the moment, they should, you know, be treated with the respect. You could that, hug them to death. You could hug little chicken. But, but also, I mean, I've always thought, I've also, you know, cows don't die of old age. Sheep don't die of old age. You know, the, the idea that you can kind of... We have, so we, have we, we, sh- just, we would just have immortal cows going around. Well, no, we've shaped us. these animals over millennia. And part of that is a cycle where, you know, they will at some point be killed. Now, you can't unwind 10,000 years of domestication and say, run wild and free, little cow. Um, they wouldn't last. So we are where we are. And I think you have a responsibility to, as, both as a, a consumer, but also as a producer, to try and make it as, you know, bearable, painless, and tolerable of the life of an animal as, as you possibly can. But, Kasia, you've also got meat trade backer, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, not personally. <laughs> I'm, I'm really surrounded. Like, Andrew's wearing an Eat the Lard t-shirt right now. <laughs> Praise the Lard. <laughs> Praise the Lard. <laughs> Andrew, you know that you and I have been angling for a meat pod for mm-hmm. a while yeah, for quite a long time. When I first met Andrew, we bonded quite a lot over both of our dads being implicated in the meat. Well, actually, it's both of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're not in the hay. <laughs> are you or are you not a sausage baker? <laughs> Andrew's dad used to subscribe to the Meat Trades Journal, and my dad used to subscribe in both English and Polish. I bet that's a the great man was read. so dedicated. <laughs> What's Polish for Meat Trades Journal? I couldn't tell oh. you. <laughs> I've blocked that part. Of the memory out. Um, But yeah, I think there's some really interesting ideas here. You know, I I personally feel 
quite conflicted about my family's background in the meat trade because I know that it brings my dad so much joy, so much pride, having worked in an industry where, you know, he came from communist Poland. There were 12 of them, 12 children. Um, they were on a communist blacklist. So actually making it making it in society was incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. So he got into the meat trade. He got into the meat business because that's how you could guarantee that you could feed your family. His granddad did it. It was seen as like an honorable trade. And I think it's really interesting that for me, it's kind of seen as a little bit of a, not badge of disdain, but you know, a little bit of a, what, what will people think of me if they know that my dad was in the meat trade? What does that even mean? And it's only now that I'm starting to come to terms with the fact that this is such an important... We we all eat meat in this room, except for you, Jav. <laughs> Your hands are still <laughs> being held up because yeah, we're holding completely. you to ransom. And, you know, what does that actually mean about how meat sits in our society? It's vital for so many people's survival. And yet still we kind of look down on the people that, are, that, that work in that industry, that work in that trade. I think, ironically, that has changed quite a lot in recent years. And the, the funny thing is, when I was a kid... My my dad and my mum sort of sort of promised, aka threatened me with, well, don't worry if it doesn't work out. <laughs> if this journalism lark you're trying to, if it doesn't work out, there'll always be a place for you in the shop. Same. And what they what they meant was like, if it doesn't work out, look what's waiting for you. And I was like, no, I'm never doing that. I'm never never doing that. And yet, ironically. If, let's say I had taken that weird path, and I'm not physically built for it, you know, most sausages are bigger than me. You know, I, I couldn't really... We're on cart. a podcast, Andrew, you can lie about your I physical am. prowess. <laughs> I, cannot, you know, I am not able to cart a four of beef around, you know, in my own, you know, just by myself, like, like my dad and the guys that work with him could. But if I'd gone down that path... I might now be sort of running some kind of artisan butcher's joint where everybody's got tattoos and a huge beard and it's like 25 quid for a tomahawk steak. Whereas all around me, journalism has kind of dissolved mm. full of people who are highly trained in a business that just isn't there anymore. So, you know, we've moved into a strange place where there's only high end and absolute low end. Well, okay, to loop back to, to tech and AI, I mean, are we all going to end up in Andrew's parents' butcher's shop? <laughs> Because AI is is replacing us all. I mean, if, are you seeing that that these jobs seem almost more physical labor seems more desirable because you you can't be replaced by algorithms if you're doing something with your your hands. I'm glad you asked me that and not can we bring our loved ones back using lab grown meat? Which would have been <laughs> That's another a really good idea. That we could have gone down, weekend but, at Bernie's too. Yeah, um, the automation is obviously a big threat, and automation is a big threat particularly to us now because it's coming for the white collar jobs. So factory lines have been automated for years, and it, it, including meat processing, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, there are plenty of jobs though that we cannot replace easily or automate easily and actually care is one of those because we don't have a way of replacing the vast amounts of human care physical human care that, need, that is needed every day so yeah automation probably um, the AI is not taking over entirely just yet so we're not yet going to be on the butcher slab Kasia, so Smithfield's meat market is is shutting down. We're not exactly sure on the dates of this at the moment, but it's shutting down and going to to move out to Dagenham and the Museum of London is taking its place. You know, does that need to be looked at as not just a market is shutting down and be looked at more as a, you know, that's a historical ending which we're coming to terms with? Yes. So uh, my fellow meat enthusiast, Andrew Harrison, uh, sent me some photographs of the kind of final days of Smithfield. And I felt really small in comparison to the capital H history moment of that. So there's this excellent quote by Laurie Lee inside with Rosie, where he's kind of looking at the end of rural life as we know it. And he says, 
The last days of my childhood were also the last days of the village. I belonged to that generation which saw, by chance, the end of a thousand years of life. And when I saw these photographs of Smithfield closing down after 800 years, I felt really small. It felt like a real change, like a societal shift. And we can, you know, talk about the number of butchers. Uh, there's been over a thousand that have shut since 2008. Often they're kind of middle and small sized mm, yeah. ones because you can't export to the EU anymore. Super frustrating for Brexit. them. I know. Yeah. Well, you know, hate to say it. <laughs> hate to ring the Brexit klaxon, but... Everybody take a drink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we should do that for the next one. <laughs> but also, um, there are a number of interrelated factors, as Andrew was saying. That idea that Andrew, people like Andrew and I aren't going into the family businesses. But also, I think the issue of food scarcity as well. So, like I said, when my, da- when my dad entered the meat industry, it was really about... Um, how scarce food was to come across. And now um, you can just pop down to Sainsbury's, pop down to Tesco, and it might be expensive, but there is a there is a kind of place for you to get that, get that, right, quite easily. I mean, with food generally, has it always been more more political over the course of history, more consequential than we, we all give it credit for? I mean, there's sort of, it lacks veracity, but the quote, let them eat cake, is one historical quote that everyone seems to know. And then milk snatcher thatcher has really stuck there. For our time, is food something that we really need to place a lot more strongly in the narrative of political history? Absolutely. Food is incredibly important. It's always been linked to economics. So if we think of the word salt coming from the Latin sal, because Roman soldiers were paid in salt often, because it's a fantastic um, source for preservation of meat and food particularly. Also, medieval peasants would have to pay taxes on the corn they grow, essentially a food tax to the person that owned the the area of land, but also the histories of spices and other foodstuff. Sugar, for example, is the history of empire. All of these are heavily uh, politicised and they are political. But I think it becomes visibly big P political when there's a, a moment of scarcity. So during the pandemic, I think the images of shelves empty, I think, showed how weak, I guess, our food systems are. And it really, you know, that feeling of being really discombobulated and really existentially worried about our society. So I think that politicians, they ignore food very much at their peril. The French Revolution, again, you know, famously uh, that preceded it was the flower war. And that was an anger over, over there not being enough grain. So if we do run out of food, Rishi Sunak has got a, got a lot on his plate. Although, well, when there's yeah. something that we all have to do, we literally have to do it, which is eat, does that become a really almost convenient but really tangible way of framing a period in time? So you mentioned the pandemic there, but then World War II is so framed through rationing. That seems to be such a massive part of the sort of make do and mend mentality and of that generation. And so does it allow us to, to contextualise history? Is it useful to history in that way? Absolutely. So I think food provisions, obviously, they're essential during wartime because rationing, it was just a massive policy, right? Big P politics policy, but also affected everyone's lives on such a granular level. Every man, woman and child had a ration book. And I think it's a great way to teach people about World War II. You know, we can all know how it feels to be hungry. But also, I think World War II When we frame it in the context of food, we really see that it was a total war, meaning that every single aspect of society was geared towards the war machine. Now, 
I do think as a historian of the memory of the Second World War, that we often think about this kind of twee, keep calm and carry on. Here's a ration book that I'm going to buy a a grandchild that I don't really know what their interests are too much anymore. We kind of amp up that kind of keep calm and carry on. And it's often taught in, yeah, quite a quite a whimsical way, as it were. And if you just read any Langell's memoirs of having to dig up potato fields and how awful that was, or any accounts of the siege of Stalingrad, for example, you realise that re- really food during wartime is no joke. Can I tell my food, war and politics story? Of course. This is astonishing. <laughs> so my my granddad, the non-butchering granddad, the other one who grew up to be a bus driver and things like that, they were quite poor. And he used to work, when he left school at 14, he went to be a lift operator in the Bon Marche in Liverpool, which is a big department store. And the you know grandees would come up and down in the lift. And one day, one of the grandees, he's going up in the lift and he points at my granddad and says, feed that boy up. And for the next, the, the, thereafter, my granddad was given good hot meals um, and was built up and kind of became healthy. The grandee was Lord Walton, who went on to be food minister in the war, the architect of Walton Pie and Snook the Recovered Fish, when Britain had to become food self-sufficient. So what I'm saying basically is that Lord Walton, food minister, is responsible for my granddad not dying of rickets or whatever. Consequently, that's why we're all here. So that decision <laughs> by Lord Walton to feed up my granddad is the reason these podcasts are here. So Andrew Harrison can't exist without pies. Exactly. Is, 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 is the short term. Cut me and I bleed pastry. <laughs> so Andrew, would you eat, if it, if it were an option, uh, a little bit of Jarve steak? On the Greg Wallace model yeah. of, uh, well, so they recovered a bit of Jarve. Yeah. Well, this is a strange thing. And what I found really fascinating about that mockumentary, because it p- brings you right up close to the philosophical question, why is eating humans wrong because you are killing an intelligent creature? What if you weren't killing the intelligent creature? What if there was no thought behind the meat, as it were? Mm. Um, And you almost get into sort of semi-spiritual, quasi-religious things. So I'd have to say that, yes, I would eat uh, a bavette (laughs) de jarve or possibly entrecote de jarve, but I'd probably have nightmares about it afterwards. It's a really interesting question because I stopped eating octopus because I kept seeing all these things about Mm. how clever octopuses are. Uh, And they're also quite scary, right? Mm. So you can imagine an octopus coming after you, hunting you down uh, when it gets a little (laughs) little bit more. You ate my mother. This is why I fall back on the the circle of life, Elton John uh, aspect, which is this is the this is this is the way life on Earth operates. We unfortunately we eat each other. A corollary of that has to be you mu- you must accept that if you find yourself in the forest in America and a mountain lion or a bear gets you, then circle that's fair. Fair, you know what I mean. <laughs> We've come to the end of this special panel edition, so we're going to finish with a bit of culture in memory of the Fallen Culture Bunker edition we ran for a while. This is the Bunker Reading Group, where we ask the panel to recommend an article or piece of literature to listeners. Kasia, what are you recommending? So I've just started Lucy Robinson's book, Now That's What I Call a History of the 1980s, Pop Culture and Politics in the Decade that Shaped Modern Britain. And I love it because right at the beginning, she issues a caveat, which is 
This is what I call a history of the 1980s. Whenever you try and write a history of contemporary Britain, there's always someone that says, mm, I don't think it was like that. And I know I felt that before writing histories of, con of the contemporary period. So I really love the idea that there are lots of different interpretations of the years that we've just gone through. And she's just putting forward her one that connects a whole range of different things from like rave music to politics to... Uh, Diana's legs in the sun and loads of different things. So yeah, it's it's really really brilliant. I well, you can have it. good research in the Podmaster's office because uh, the Spotify algorithm solely puts on the Cure. And also, fingers crossed, I'm going to get her for a bunker. So listen out for that. Oh, great, uh, Kate. What about you? I'm going to recommend the Guardian article on the AI and death theme. So it's called, It Was As If My Father Were Actually Texting Me, Grief in the Age of AI. It's by Amy Piercy. And the lead is, people are turning to chatbot impersonations of lost loved ones to help them grieve. Will AI help us live after we're dead? And it's a really, it's, I know the topic sounds depressing, but it's a really lovely read. And Andrew, what about you? Well, bookwise, I continue to plough through the works of a uh, friend of the podcast, Adrian Tchaikovsky, who just finished The Doors of Eden, and I've got more to go through. But what the thing I want to recommend is, um, uh, uh, it's also from The Guardian, actually. It's on our food theme. It's from their long reads, and uh, it's about fish and chips. It's about the end of the chippy. Mm. Um, a funeral for fish and chips. Why are Britain's chippies disappearing? And it's a fantastic exploration of... The world of the chip shop um, in in Western Scotland, it, running through it is stories of family and stories of personal tragedy, stories of the pandemic. Uh, the National Federation of Fish Friars says that as many as a third of the Britain's 10,500 chippies might go dark, and they call it a potential extinction event. So eat the fish and chips while you can. I mean, I feel like I'm bringing more gloom here, but it's, it's, it is a, a fascinating picture of what the chip shop has meant to us. We've all grown up with it. And like a lot of things you imagine... It'll be there forever. You know, we are here at the end of 10,000 years of chip shops or whatever. Mm. <laughs> um, it's really fascinating. And it's by Tom Lamont. And it's a cracking read. We should, we'll should we put the link in the show notes. I thought you were going to say Francis Fukuyama. <laughs> <laughs> the end of chip shops. By the end of <laughs> <laughs> well, my book I'm going to recommend is Joe Gold's Secret by Joseph Mitchell, which is about a sort of down-on-his-look writer in Greenwich Village who is writing an oral history where he goes around collecting gossip and hearsay. And then I've actually lost the book, though. So, I mean, it's really good, the half of it. But I don't know. If, so if anyone's finished that book and wants to tell me what the rest of it's like and whether I should go buy another copy, that would be absolutely great. And that brings us to the end of the panel edition of The Bunker. Kasia, thank you for joining me. Thanks. Kate, thank you. Thank you. And Andrew, a pleasure as ever. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and come back tomorrow for another episode of The Bunker and we'll be back with another panel show next month. The Bunker was presented by Jacob Jarvis with Andrew Harrison, Dr. Kasia Tomaszewicz and Dr. Kate Devlin. The producer was Liam Tate, audio production from me, Robin Leeburn, art by Jim Parrott and our music is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>